0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. The book of Hosea describes Hosea's marriage to Gomer and its prophetic meaning for Israel. And we talked about last week how the message of chapters one through three sets the stage for our understanding of the prophetic word. And we learned that Hosea was prophesying the 30 years or so leading to a serious destruction. So we had to do some Bible work here. Because I realize I have talked to some of you and some of you have shared with me that you've never even studied the Minor Prophets, and I completely get that. Um, they're hard to read and they're hard to study unless you can track with some sort of historical narrative. Otherwise, they seem very disjointed. And for me in my personal life, the Minor Prophets have been companions in three different seasons of my life, make it four, and now this being a fifth. And so I've always, my my life, my faith was changed when I discovered the prophets. My views of Jesus changed when I discovered the prophets. I discovered the priestly, but also the prophetic ministry of Jesus, who is known as the prophet, the priest, and the king. And my hope is that maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit will allow that to happen to you. And so as we talk about God sending the prophets leading up to their destruction, by, Israel and by Assyria in 722, we we have to remember that this whole book is addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel and not the southern kingdom. And we remember that Hosea is a contemporary of Amos. And so when we looked at Israel's rap sheet, we remembered that Israel's rap sheet in Hosea is the same rap sheet in Amos. The difference being Hosea is focusing on different aspects of Israel's struggle. So in Israel, we find that Hosea is at home there unlike Amos who was from Tekoa he's prophesying around the same time and so therefore Israel's experiencing great economic peace and prosperity under king Jeroboam's reign nationalism and unhealthy patriotism is flourishing whereas God said to Amos who said to Israel i hate your pride and i loathe your citadels and then he poses the question why do you think you're better than everyone else are your lands larger than others and so Amos reminds us, and Hosea reminds us in the same text, just in different ways, that, that Israel lost a sense of humility and gratefulness. And this great economic gap was increasing between the rich and the poor. The courts of law were corrupt, and laws and policies were upheld to protect the established, the establishment, the wealthy. And there was a breakdown in morality throughout the nation and religious practices, and this is where Hosea really hones in. Religious practices of worship were mixed in with beliefs and practices of pagan religion, specifically the Canaanite god of Baal, but then Baal becomes a catch-all word, it seems, for other idols. We learned in chapters 1 through 3 that the people of Israel had started loving the blessings more than the blesser, and they started pursuing the blessings as an idol and let the blesser go. And that is why God said, you pursued other lovers. And so Hosea's prophetic ministry is very different because he has to do something very unique. He has to actually embody his ministry. He has to live out the tragedy as he has to pursue this unfaithful wife who cheats on him and runs away from him. And he goes back and pursues her again and she runs away from him. And then he goes and he stands in a lover and a line of lovers to buy her back. And we learned last week that that is because our God is a God who will not give up on us. We can pursue lovers of all kinds of different shapes and sizes, and yet God pursues us. He will not give up. He does not love with a fickle love. He does not love with a fragile love. He loves with a faithful love. And Hosea embodies that. But then we come to what I think may be the climax of the entire text. Hosea chapter 11. So If you have your Bible, you can go with me there. You can turn your eyes to the screen. I would encourage you to go with me there simply because Hosea is a minor prophet. And it'd be good to know where Hosea is. Page, you know, 1229 in my Bible. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. This is God speaking. Listen to the words. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they departed from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. That's a, a name he gives his people. comes from a tribal name. So when he uses these other names, he's speaking of his people. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them in my arms. But they never knew that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. In other words, God is saying He stooped down to them to teach them, to guide them, to provide for them. He gave them all they needed. but They forgot it was Him. Verse 5, Israel will not return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will be his king, because they refused to turn. A sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? need to know that Adma and Zeboim are two of the five cities destroyed in the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which became sort of a proverbial example of God's furious love and wrath. But then God says, I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. See, we we see that God weeps over the thought of giving Israel what they've proven they want, which is a life without Him as their king. He weeps over handing over His beloved to another kingdom, and the thought of giving Him over to death arouses deep grief, grief within His being. And, and although He'll give them the consequences of their idolatrous pursuits and choices, although He will give them inevitably what they want, he won't leave them there. He'll have mercy. He'll relent from allowing total disaster. Because he loves them too much to give them what they deserve. And so he says in verse 9: I will not vent the full of fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the holy one among you. I will not come in rage. It's like God is saying. I'm not like you. I'm not petty. I'm not undiscerning and spiteful. I will not act like a lover scorned, even though I am a lover scorned. I am different. I will not enact revenge. I will not seek punitive and retributive justice. And We know that Yahweh does not. That's what we do. We do that. Yahweh seeks restorative justice. He makes a way forward, even in the consequences of Israel's actions. God will offer a path toward healing. It's in His nature to do so, which is why He follows the statement up, I think, with the statement, because I am the Holy One among you. See, the path of restorative justice and love requires them to walk and follow Him homeward back to His arms. And so He says in verse 10, They will follow the Lord, and He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children will come trembling from the west. They will be roused like the birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. And then this is always the prophet's mic drop. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, there are many things in this passage we could tend to this morning. Last week, we could once again tend to the relentless love of our God who refuses to let His people go. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? This pleading God. We could tend to the reminiscing of the day that God embraces when, he, when, when as slaves under the oppressive hand of the Egyptian empire, God adopts Israel and calls them his own. When he says in verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We, we could do that. We we could tend to the heartache of God as he recounts the many times His children ran away from him rather than ran toward him and how they left him for other gods and meaningless pursuits due to their misplaced affections and hopes. We could could do that like in verse 3 when he says, the more I called them, the more they departed from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And we could tend to all of these beautiful verses and expressions of God's love, and we will, but we will do so with a different section of the text. We will tend to them through the word picture that God gives in this prophetic word. And it's in verses three and four when he says, and I want you to see the text. Don't just hear it, see it. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them in my arms. But they never knew I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with ropes of love. To them I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. I love that image. I don't know if you see it, but it's as if God wants us to see the image of a loving and patient father. And as I've meditated on this text, it has done nothing less than draw me back to Ian when he was little. Ian when he was born, actually. Because as I read this text, I, I, I couldn't help think about how when Ian was born into this world that he found himself in this great big world, but so much to see, so much to discover, so much to do. And I, I started looking at pictures and I remembered how uh, when he was born in this world, he discovered not only the world, he discovered underpants. As I'm changing him, and of course, I discovered protective bibs, if you know what I'm saying and then he discovered rolling over. And I remember that moment, and I remember when he discovered sitting up. He had to, you know, he, he required a little help there in that little fancy seat. I remember when he discovered mobility and push-ups, apparently. Um, but this is when he was trying to learn how to crawl. And as I was tracking to the pictures, I remember when he discovered other things. I remember when he discovered puff snacks. And he got angry when he ran out. Like he was saying, "Give me more, woman." I remember when he discovered books, and I remember when he discovered walking. I remember that probably the most vivid. I remembered in when he discovered that eating could be messing messy. I remember when he discovered coffee, and we discovered that he discovered coffee. Uh, and then I remember when he discovered freaky store displays. <laughs> he's like, he's looking at this, saying, uh, "Dude, what's up with this?" Like you can see him clinging to me. As I'm just trying to take a picture. I remember when he discovered snow and hats and Easter eggs and eating while driving. I remember when he discovered reading with me and I remember when he discovered toilet paper. I remember when he discovered Hoyt. That's quite a discovery, isn't it, Janet? It's one of my favorite pictures because this is the day we moved in. You remember that, Hoyt? I love this picture so much. Because Hoyt, as my brother who didn't know me at all, was there to receive me and my family and be with my little boy while we were trying to get things organized. And I just I love that picture, special. I remember when he discovered Big Bird, when he discovered Halloween costumes, and that his mother likes to take pictures of him in Halloween costumes. If you can look at his face, he's like really, Mama. I remember when he discovered pumpkins, and then I remember when both he and his mom and I discovered the scary things of life when we discovered he had a peanut allergy and he passed out. And we rushed to the hospital and prayed and waited for him to get better and then seeing him get better. I remember when Ian was growing up learning how to live. And I remember that when God seems to remember that his affection for Israel was the same. He has his own little photo album, right? He he says, that It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them in my arms. I led them with cords of a man, with ropes of love. I bent down, and I see the image of Yahweh bending down like I'm bending down within, helping them steady their unsteady steps. The Lord of heaven and earth, the one who can measure the ocean hollows of his hand, the one who, before whom the nations are like a drop in a bucket, Isaiah says, the one who can make the rulers of the earth as nothing, Isaiah says, and to whom nothing can be compared, Isaiah says, the one who says, I, I, I taught you to walk. I may mean, have I made it all, but when I taught you to walk, I bent, I bent down to you, I stooped down to you, I led you with cords of a man and ropes of love. I, I bent down to provide for you. God the Father bends down offering, a steady hand to an unsteady child named Israel, encouraging his little steps, letting him fall at times, but then sweeping him up in his arms when he starts to cry, wiping away his tears, comforting him in those moments of worry and fear and offering him rest when he is weary. It's as if Hosea wants God's people, including us, to see all of God's patient, tender, forgiving, and guiding fatherly love. God has taught Israel to walk, guiding his sons and daughters with words of law and prophets and priests. He repeatedly forgives his child when he stumbles and deliberately runs from them. He misplaces their affections and chases after other gods, yet God, as the heavenly Father, constantly comforts and bends down and stoops down and holds the hand of his children when they're injured and desperate and fearful. And All of this reflects the actions of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. All of this reminds us that it is God who teaches Israel to walk and how to follow Him. But all of this reflects the actions of God for the church, for us. The God who stoops down to Israel His wayward people filled with sin, neck deep in adultery and idolatry and what seems to be a relentless commitment to other gods stoops down to us in Christ. It's just like Paul said in Philippians 2, talking of Christ Jesus when he busts out into this song that though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. See, church, when God stoops down to us in the person of Jesus, he arrives completely mindful of the poor and the needy, of the hurting and the hated. He travels to the ash heap of our society, the places where people are cast aside like trash what happens when god stoops down and finds those in such a place what does he do does he does he judge does he does he correct does he run them through some qualification process to see if they're worthy of coming in does he does he make them prove that they're worthy of this love? Is that what he does? Is that is that what I did to Ian? Is that did I say to Ian, "I'm gonna I'll change you as long as you don't do this again"? I mean, is that what we do? And that's not what God does. It's not what he. It's not what he did. It's not what he's doing. He, he runs to the ash heap where people are so easily cast aside like trash, and he sweeps them up in their arms like he did Israel through the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross, and. He embraces us, he forgives us, he fills us with his presence as he welcomes us into his and and then and then he holds on to us. When he lets us down, he, he holds on to us with a steady hand and he says, walk, "Walk with me." Walk with me. And when we snatch our hand away and we run out into the places we shouldn't go, he he chases after us like a parent chases after a child who's gonna hurt cares or herself and he stoops down to us again and he looks us in the eyes and he says, No, 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 no. That's gonna hurt you. And then he takes us by the hand and he walks again. He's not like us. He's not petty like us. He doesn't He doesn't do what we do to others and make them do penance or change before they come to us. He's not like us. Thank God He's not like us. See, when God stoops down to us in the person of Jesus, He's telling us that He loves us just as we are and not as we should be. But He loves us too much to leave us as we are and wants to lead us into who we can be. What He's telling us Though, he's telling all. All. You name them, you think of them. The ones the church has said aren't welcome. You think of them. He's telling them. He's telling us all. Because he told you. He's telling me. And see, when we look at the Gospels and see God stoop down to us in the person of Jesus, we see that after pronouncing God's kingdom will welcome all who turn to Him and believe, He gathers up these blue-collar workers as His first apprentices. And he, he invites them to learn the way of God's welcome alongside Him as He teaches in the synagogues and heals unclean, tormented people and journeys to Galilee and neighborhoods and touches lepers with His own hand and shows compassion to the vulnerable. And here you go, he shares a table with sinners. See, when God stoops down to us in the person of Jesus, He teaches us how to walk as He walked. He's always done that. And maybe this is why the text that we read from Philippians 2, when the Apostle Paul speaks to us about the God who stoops down to us, that he begins this whole song with, with these words. He says in verse 1, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is, Is there any comfort from His love? Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? God, make us tender and compassionate. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Are they? Are they? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other on how to vote, right? On what to do. Uh Uh-uh. We can't figure that mess out. But we know how to love. We know how to learn. And we see how to love, when we see the God who stoops down. And so Paul says, and here it is. He says, by loving one another and working together. See, this is hard work. We gotta stay together. We gotta stay put. We gotta work this out. You can't. We can't just bail. We can't just leave when it gets hard because that resists the demands of love. See, love demands something. That's why Yahweh's heart is broken. That's why Jesus had to come to us with outstretched arms on a cross. So we we, so we, we work together. This is this is hard. Loving each other. I mean, have you tried to love John? I mean, really? Like, have you tried? He's easy. But have you tried? Have you really tried to love your crazy aunt, Tammy? I mean, she's precious and all. But we can be hard to love. She's not. It takes work. And then he says, verse 3 don't be selfish and don't try to impress others. Be humble. Listen to this. Matter of fact, read it with me. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Do we do that really when we judge? When we do the thing? Do we do that? Is that what we do? And don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then he says the hardest thing of all see, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Who? Who had all the authority? To judge all the authority to fix, all the authority to draw the lines in the sand, and instead took it on himself to the cross. As the God who stoops down to us and then takes us by the hand and then says to us, Now, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. And that means denying your impulses to do anything different from me when it comes to yourself and when it comes to others. Because he looks at us and says, because I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to hold your hand. Because when God stoops down in the person of Jesus, he teaches us how to walk as he walked. We see him challenge the narrow definitions of hospitality and holiness Holiness, as he presses those who've been swept up in God's arms, which is us, we've been swept up in God's arms, he presses them to follow him outward to the margins of society and welcome those with whom they least desire to have a connection, especially those incapable of returning the favor. When God stoops down to us in the person of Jesus, he teaches us how to walk as he walked, teaching us to embrace others and not view people as projects to fix or problems to solve, rather as people to be embraced just as they are because that's how He embraces us. When God stoops down in the person of Jesus, He teaches us that this is what it means to walk, to walk and hold to God's unchanging hand. When God stoops down to us, He becomes a friend of sinners. And He's found in the presence of liars and thieves, prostitutes and those who do not believe. He's found in the presence of the rich and the poor, the powerless and the divorced. He's he's found in the presence of the widow and the child and the religious elite and those marginalized and left out. Jesus is found in the presence of the murderer and the immigrant the racist and the unrepentant. When God stoops down to us, He becomes a friend of sinners and He's found in the lives of sinners like us. And then He tells us to walk as He walked. See, Hosea has a word for the church today. He reminds us that even though we, like Israel, are prone to idolatry and of self-sufficiency, that even like Israel, we have this tendency to lean into a kind of patriotic elitism that tempts us to believe that we're the source of our own happiness and security. That seduces us to want the blessings more than the blesser, blesser the healings more than the healer, the, the liberty more than the liberator, the, the salvation more than the savior. He still reaches down to us and teaches us how to walk as he walks. And he offers his steady hand to guide our unsteady lives. And like Israel, we're going to fall at times. But like Israel, he's going to sweep us up in his arms. He's going to sweep you up in his arms. No matter what you did to make yourself fall, or what a world given to the reign of sin and death does to make you fall, God, isn't going to leave you there. He's going to sweep you up. He's going to hold you close. He's going to wipe your tears. Then He's going to look at you and He's going to look at me. He's not going to say a word. He's just going to set us down. He's going to make sure our feet are steady. He's going to hold out His hand. He's going to invite us to take it. And he's going to say, let's walk. Because there are others who are falling down too. And I want you to join me in sweeping them up in my arms. That is the God who stoops down to us. That is the God who calls us to do the same.